here we go. Let's talk biblically about the death penalty. But first, I just want to show you Moxie. There she is. Here she is. Yeah. <laughs> she decided to hang out with us today. And so there you go. And that is all the cuteness you get because we're going to talk about the death penalty. Um, so the goal here, the agenda right now is Bible over politics. That's my whole thing, right? I, I want scripture over and above any concerns about um, preconceived political commitments, ideations, all that kind of stuff. Like I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and his words and the word of God has a much stronger place in my worldview and in my understanding of even things like government than my political affiliations. So if I start with the Bible, do I end with the death penalty? And the answer is going to be yes. Like this is actually really clear. I'm, I'm actually shocked how many Christians aren't clear on this topic, but not shocked because they're, they're like, you know, fools or something like that. I'm not trying to insult anybody. I'm just surprised at how many Christians don't get these clear teaching passages. So we're going to walk through these clear verse, um, you know, in passages that talk about the death penalty and explain it to us. But I'm also going to deal with objections, right? So here's some of the objections I'll handle after I walk through the text. Um, what about those who say Jesus rejected the death penalty when he rejected eye for an eye and he said, turn the other cheek. What about people who say David, King David should have had the death penalty, but God pardoned him for killing Uriah or John eight, where Jesus encounters a woman uh, caught in adultery and he's, he's, he doesn't let anybody stone her. So he rejects the death penalty. This is what some people would say or think. Others would say that God's justice. And here's when you get real nuanced, right? Here's when you know that you're clever in your bad theology. And they say, but God's justice is really restorative, not retributive. It's not about punishment. It's about fixing people. And um, we'll talk about that. Some others would say that in order to protect the innocent, that there are some who are legitimately innocent who get the death penalty, which to me is a huge, huge travesty um, and a hor horrible thing to think about. But they'll say the, the, the solution to this problem of the innocent who get the death penalty, who are wrongly convicted, that the solution is to get rid of the death penalty. And others would say, I just don't trust the government to get it right. And so I don't want them to have the power to do the death penalty because I don't trust them to get it right. And so let's start where we should start, where all this should have started with you, which is in scripture. And we'll, in particular, we'll go to Genesis chapter 9. So this is probably the number one most important passage in the Bible on the topic of the death penalty. And we're going to walk through it um, quickly. Everything will be quick today, but, but it's going to be to put it in its priority. In its, in its proper place. So Genesis 9-4. Oh, by the way, I'm Pastor Mike Winger and I do, I help people learn to think biblically about everything. That's my goal. That's my agenda. Um, and here we go. You can subscribe if you like and all that stuff. You know, if you want to get notifications, um, usually two videos a week, yada, yada. So Genesis 9-4 says, but you shall not, uh, oh, excuse me, 9-5. Here we go. 9-5. Um, but oh, let me set the context for this. In Genesis 9, God is not talking to Israel. You hear that? He is not talking to Israel. Israel doesn't exist. Abraham doesn't even exist. This is after the flood, and he's talking to Noah and the survivors after the flood. So he's talking to all of mankind. And he sets up a couple rules for mankind. One of those rules is the death penalty here in Genesis 9. So in verse 5, it says, And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. This phrase, and there's not a lot of 
intelligent debate, as far as I know, on this issue. This phrase that, you know, basically, if a man kills a man, God will require the community to kill that guy. Like this is, I know this is extreme, and we're going to talk in more detail, but we can't dodge the scripture on these issues, right? From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Then it goes on, verse 6, the, and it's in quotes here because it's something that they would, they would need to spread out to all nations and for everybody to know. Whoever sheds the blood of man, of man <clears throat> by man shall his blood be shed. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So here we get the reasoning and we get the consequence. God is, has made man in his own image. So I'm in the image of God. You're in the image of God. And if I kill someone in the image of God, then it is men are authorized by God to kill me. Now, this is not meant to be some like government free avenging you know, it's not like you run around like the green arrow and I'm just going to slay those who I deem, you know, criminals worthy of death. Um, that's not what we're saying here. Really, it's just, it's a statement that there's an authorization here because normally you can't kill a person. Okay, that's the thing. It's murder is wrong. But what if somebody does murder? Okay, well, in that case, by man shall his blood be shed. It's not poetry that's just meant to say like, it'll just so happen in the course of life that a man will shed another man's blood. Rather, it's just teaching this is the ruling from God, the death penalty. And that is actually how it's carried forward in the text of the Old Testament, right? So this is not a Mo law of Moses thing, but in the law of Moses, the death penalty is enacted in just that fashion, that a person commits murder and that they get the death penalty as a result of the murder they committed. This shouldn't be controversial. Like to simply say, maybe you think the death penalty is controversial. You know what shouldn't be controversial is that the Bible supports it. That shouldn't be controversial. It can be complicated. I get that. But the simple fact that the scripture supports the death penalty is pretty easy. So Genesis 9, a statement that goes to all people, it's not about the law of Moses. It's then reinforced. It's then reinforced later on in scripture. So we're going to get this in other places. Um, but one of the ways in which we can see it reinforced is sort of scattered. I won't quote verses here, but it's scattered throughout the prophets. The prophets come against the people of Israel, but they also come against foreign nations. One of the reasons they come against foreign nations is because of the lack of justice. Now, I realize that the term justice has become a loaded term, but I think biblically, justice, it, it does involve um, treating people rightly, but part of that means punishing the wicked. And that's an essential part of biblical justice, is punishing those who commit crimes. That's a truly essential part of biblical justice. So when the prophets, and here's the key, when the prophets speak against nations in the Old Testament, Gentiles, not just Jews, Right, so we can't say this is just about the law of Moses. When they speak against nations, they frequently speak against them for not punishing the wicked. The lack of justice. Like Jesus in the parable of the widow and the unjust judge. And the widow's crying out, um, you know, to the unjust judge, you know, you know, give vengeance for me against my adversary. There's someone who's hurting her. She's a widow. She's an underprivileged person. Someone who's not usually as well represented in courts and stuff like that. And she's crying out for the unjust judge to help her. How? By punishing the person who is hurting her. And Jesus refers to this as justice. So, I mean, justice is biblically, we'll get back to that later, justice is not purely restorative. That's There's an element of that that can be there. Yeah, there's an element of rest restoration that's there. But when you start saying it's restorative to those who are being punished, you're getting unbiblical in all reality. That's just how it is. Um, 
So the teaching here in the, New, in the Old Testament is reinforced also by the law. And I think that we get some interesting elements about the death penalty in the law of Moses that I'm not going to say we're under the law, but there's things to learn from it. Okay, so here we go. We're learning from the law. Deuteronomy 19 verse 11. It says, but if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him, that phrase lie in wait, it's like a phrase to basically mean, well, I'm using lie in wait. Basically, they're plotting against the person. They're planning like an ambush or some sort of harm against them or scheming is the idea. So if anyone hates his neighbor, lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies and he flees to one of these cities, these are cities of refuge. These are Levitical cities spread throughout Israel where somebody could go um, to try to, uh, if they were guilty of manslaughter but not murder, they could be safe in this city. But then it goes on. Then the elders of this city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. It goes on and gets even more harsh. Your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. So you, you have to deliver him over. The, the Old Testament law also specifies that when somebody has committed murder, that this is, again, in Genesis 9, there's one reason for the death penalty, murder. You commit murder, you get the death penalty. Um, in the Old Testament law, if someone committed murder and received the death penalty, there were other reasons for death penalty under the law, but we're not under the law. We, so murder is a definitely a biblical reason for the death penalty. Uh, but under the law, they couldn't accept a ransom. They couldn't accept a payment. They couldn't take bail on that person. And even the elders of the city, which was made for the preservation of those who might be innocently accused of crimes, they had to take him out of the city and kill the guy. Really extreme, really strong. If if you think that the, that the death penalty is inherently immoral, then you do not have a biblical worldview on this topic. That's my, that's my bottom line here, right? I want, I want scripture to guide my heart and mind. If I disagree with the Bible, it's easy. I must be wrong. I'll change my mind. And so that's what I'm appealing to here. Uh, but notice this, and this blows, blows me away. You shall purge the guilt of the innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. So the principle is this. Catch this. That when somebody in your community commits murder and the community has not punished the murderer, the guilt of that murder is spread out to the community, not just to the murderer. That is a major reason why the death penalty has to happen, biblically speaking. Okay, I'm, I don't make laws and policies. I'm talking about theology here. So you, you, by killing the murderer, you purge the guilt of innocent blood from the nation. To put it in another way, you might be like, well, how does that work? I don't understand that. And to put it another way... um. Uh, I had a, a somebody give me death threats, cyber death threats, um, and and there was some credibility to it at the time. This was a few years back, and so I went to the police station and I had printed out all of just all had a whole folder full of information about this person and how they kind of stalked me here and there and stuff like that. And I'm fine and I'm not scared. Don't worry about it. But I went to the police station and I gave him all this info, and. Cybercrime is still fairly young as far as our cops are concerned and police stations concerned. When I brought them the info, they rejected all the info because I didn't include the whole posts. I only include, uh, no, it wasn't even that. I did include his, his whole post. It was pages and pages of info, but I had bolded the text that I thought was the most interesting for them to see because I don't know how much time they'll spend on this case. And they said, because you bolded, you've altered the information. We will not receive any of this into evidence. We will not even look at it. You're going to have to start over. And um, long story short, 
the justice I was looking for was blocked by those who were supposed to enforce it, okay? Whatever the red tape of all that stuff was, the end result was, um, out of my very busy seven days a week working schedule at the time, um, I took out chunks of time to deal with this and found completely no help from the government at that point. Other, and I'm not against cops. I think cops are actually great. I support the police, and this is whole, this is part of that. But do you see that there's injustice in the system when they do not help the victims of crimes? That's what this is talking about in Genesis or and in Deuteronomy. If the if the government doesn't bring the death penalty specifically to murderers, then the guilt of that murder spreads not only from the murderer but it spreads onto the community as well because they are not bringing justice to those who do the crimes. Justice is punishment. That's just part of what justice is. That's just how it works. And so I think this is a pretty extreme statement. I think I'm making a very bold statement. I think I'm also making a very biblical statement. Again, I'll show you the text for those who don't understand. By using the death penalty, Israel would purge the guilt of innocent blood from their nation. And you can't say this only applies to the law of Israel. Because it was in Genesis that that the command about um, death penalty for murderers was given to all people, not just to Israel. And it's stronger than that. It's actually stronger than that. In Romans 13, here we have a time after, after Christ has showed up. He's died on the cross. He rose again. We have Paul who clearly teaches we're not under the law. Yet in Romans 13, he endorses lethal force being used by government. Does that mean all lethal force that government uses is good? No. Am I a dummy? <laughs> You're not a dummy either. I don't think that you think I mean that. But he endorses lethal force being used by government. That you can't principally say it's wrong. Because read Romans 13. So let's look at the passage itself. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities here. Romans 13.1 For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. I mean Genesis 9 would be seen as the institution of governmental authority in a sense. Um, verse two, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. Now he's talking about people who are rebelling against government unjustifiably. And then in verse three, he says, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what's good and you'll receive his approval. For he is, and this is where it gets very theological, he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. And in this phrase, bear the sword in vain, some try to spin around it. But look, there's just no way around it, guys. Bear the sword in vain in Romans 13 is talking about lethal force being used by government to punish evildoers. It's talking about de the death penalty in a very official capacity or putting down... Um, say certain kinds of rebellions and stuff like that, like uh, that would require lethal force. Like say when a cop pulls his gun and justifiably pulls the trigger because someone's chasing him with a knife, which by the way, yeah, that is a lethal force situation. I mean, this if you don't think it is, you're, you're just, you don't understand how this stuff works um, in real life. But at any rate, the the bear the sword in vain phrase is, re is referencing lethal force. And if you look up the word sword and its use, especially in relation to government, you will see over and over again, it relates to lethal force. So in Acts, it talks about um, putting someone to the sword and it's literally giving someone the death penalty. Even in this case, if it's unjustifiable, it references the death penalty.
That's all I'm saying. So here he says he doesn't bear the sword in vain. Okay, well, you could, well, okay, so fine, you know, government bearing the sword, they're not bearing it in vain. All you're really saying is, watch out, he's, he can use that sword, he's not carrying it for no reason. But no, it's more than that. He's actually theologically approving of the death penalty, because let's read on. For he's the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. In the context of the death penalty, Paul mentions that that the 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 um, whether it's military or um, government authorities executioner, that they're actually an avenger. Remember that word avenger, and they're carrying out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That's a huge deal. Like the, to me, there's just it's the most obvious thing. That if I if I don't have any political commitments ahead of time, I'm going to have to say the death penalty is something that God has ordained. God holds countries guilty if they don't enact it, and that we're to recognize that they are actually um, enacting God's judgment when they properly and rightly punish the evildoer with even capital punishment. In particular, the clearest case is in the case of murder. If you commit murder, you get capital punishment. Now, let me share, you, share, with, share with you how this is even stronger than you think it is. Because Romans 13 comes on the heels of Romans 12. And you got to remember this. Romans 13, I'm just going to back up a few verses. There's no actual chapter separations in the Bible. It's not like Paul wrote that title, Submission to the Authorities. Chapter 13, like that was all added many, many years later to help us navigate and find our way through the text of Scripture. I'm fine with them adding them, but those separations don't actually exist. And in some cases, they're in bad locations. Chapter separations make you disconnect from context sometimes. Well, look at what he says just prior. He says to us, here's the Christian view, right? That's government. Government can commit capital punishment, but Christians, no. And the church, no. As a community, we don't do this. Here's why. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. And there's that word avenge. Don't avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. What did Romans 13 say the government agent with the sword was? He was God's avenger invoking God's wrath or bringing down God's wrath on somebody. And here it says, but you, you're not in that position of authority. You uh, in, the, in the church, unless you happen to also be a, an executioner who's in a legitimate role in the government, unless you're in that role, right? You're to leave it to God. And how does God bring his wrath down on people? Well, often through the government. And if he doesn't, then he'll, he'll, they'll face him after death. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And one way God repays is through governmental punishments. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. By so doing, you'll heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then it immediately launches into, and of course the government bears the sword because they're God's avenger bringing down God's wrath. Okay, so I hope you guys see the context. The context there is a really big deal. This is partially why in 1 Corinthians, the church... They're dealing with people who are committing adultery and he, his, his command, Paul's command to the churches, excommunicate that person. Like he says, you know, kick them out from among your midst. He doesn't say like, bring down the death penalty upon them or something like that because we're not under the law and it's not the role of the church. Jesus says, if, if my kingdom was of this world, my servants would fight. I think a biblical view is the role of the church is to invade every country, make people Christians. And this, of course, will make them great citizens make them honoring to governments, honoring to various authorities, except they will always honor God first, which irritates some governments, of course, like China, for instance, who is trying, currently trying to change the Bible. No joke. You should look that up um, for the Chinese people. 
so yeah, it would make us great citizens, but we're not trying to establish governments exactly, but we're trying to have the best impact we can in whatever government we find ourselves. Well, one big good impact is to support the death penalty based upon the text of scripture here. Let me share with you some protections the Bible offers because um, objections to this stuff could be like, well, how, you know, but what if the person's innocent? What if the person's innocent? Then we don't want to give them the death penalty. Numbers 35 talks about this. And of course, this is the law. I'm not trying to say we're under the law. But if you don't think we can learn from the law as Christians, you're not reading the Bible the way Paul did, right? The way that the New Testament authors did, who are constantly learning from the law. We learn the principles, even if we're not under the law. So Numbers 35 verse 30 says, If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death, but there's a caveat, on the evidence of witnesses. Witnesses. So these, this is people who have direct knowledge of the guilt of that person. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. It, you just you just cannot go to... Look, maybe you really committed a murder, but there's only one witness. You can't, you, you can't be put to death based on the Old Testament law. This means that in principle, God was willing to let some murderers go free in order to avoid the conviction and death penalty on an innocent person. Okay, so this is like a, 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 a feeling you should have. What about the innocent that are on death row? I should have protections in law to keep them from going to death row. That's a good, that's a positive thing. So you need multiple witnesses. But the protections get even more. There's even more protections. Verse 31, it says, Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who's guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. This effectively, side note, this just effectively means that just because you're rich, you can't get off. And uh, the, the modern version I see of this is that Wealthy people can hire, you know, lawyers and pay more money to get better representation so they can clog up the courts with technicalities and red tape so that some wealthy murderers are getting off. Some wealthy murderers are getting off. Other ones don't. It's just kind of the way it is. Um, so, you know, the way our legal system is in America, it doesn't exactly have equal justice under law. This is just reality, right? The more money you have, the more likely you are to wiggle out of crimes. The less money you have, the more likely you are to actually get in trouble for things you didn't do. Because you just don't have the representation. Um, that's just the reality of the situation. Um, verse 32. And you shall accept no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest. And then it goes on. Um, oh, the verse I wanted to show you is, <laughs> I was thinking it was here, but it's actually in Deuteronomy. So we're going to head over to Deuteronomy 19. It goes on to talk about that same principle, though, of polluting the land that... Um, it pollutes the land when you don't punish the murderer. That's another consistent principle. That's a moral pollution, by the way. It morally pollutes the land to not engage in the death penalty against people who are truly murderers and who are truly rightly convicted with proof. On a side note, nowadays we have more evidence than ever. Okay, they required two or three witnesses and they had more requirements. We're going to talk about it in a second. But we have actually more evidence than ever before in our culture today. I could have like video proof and DNA proof. Um, audio recordings. I could literally have a video showing the person committing the murder. And we can check and see that it's not doctored or faked or something like that. And there are some who would still be op opposing the death penalty, even for those who they know are murderers. The guy kills his wife, his children, his parents, his grandparents. And then you're like, yeah, but the death penalty is wrong for him. That's the guilt of our land when we say that. Deuteronomy 1915, it says here, talk about protections. 
This is something we don't do in the U.S. at all. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime for, or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he's committed. You, you just can't get in trouble with only one witness. What if they're just making it up? What if they have an axe to grind? Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. But then verse 16 and 17 blows my mind as we read on. Then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord. Or 16, if a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, what if they're just trying to get you in trouble? What if it's a malicious prosecutor or a malicious witness? Someone's accusing you to get you in trouble. It's a frivolous lawsuit, that sort of thing. Well, the Bible had protections under the Mosaic law for that scenario. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who were in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently. Okay, this much we all agree with, and we probably would, would say we need this on our courts too, right? Um, let's make sure the person is not just being accused because of hatred, because of racism, because of some kind of prejudice, because of some sort of axe to grind in the past. Let's make sure that these things are not going on. But what happens next is not something <laughs> that I've ever seen in courts. Um, so the judges inquire diligently. They have to find out, is this witness malicious? And if the witness is a false witness and has accused the brother his brother falsely then you shall do to him and this is this is it you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother so you shall purge the evil from your midst and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you your eye shall not pity it shall be life for life eye for eye tooth for tooth hand for hand foot for foot bottom line this text is saying if i accused you of a capital crime where you would get the death penalty if you were guilty and they found out later that I had accused you because of malice. Not just I was wrong, right? Not just I, I miss I, I thought I saw you but I didn't, but because of malice I was trying I was lying. I get the death penalty. This would radically reduce false accusations for sure. Because if I make something up and they find out, I get the prison sentence you would have gotten. I get the fine you would have gotten. This is, you know, maybe there are some situations in court where this happens, but this was the standard fare in the Old Testament law. You accuse someone falsely, you try to abuse the law to hurt other people, well, then it happens to you instead. So this is the danger of false accusations. Um, this answers an objection. This answers an objection. An objection to the death penalty is, but we have to make sure that we don't hurt anybody who's innocent. We, we don't want anybody innocent going to the electric chair or going to the death penalty. And an answer is, well, you, you need protections for the innocent. What you don't need is prevention of the death penalty altogether. We can't abandon the death penalty entirely as biblical Christians. We can't abandon it entirely as a way of protecting the innocent because then we've brought guilty blood upon ourselves and upon our culture. Do you get, you get the extremities are the problem. The, the example the Bible gives, the command to all nations to do it, and then the way it plays out in Israel is the death penalty, but only with two or three witnesses. Even if the guy's guilty, but you can't prove it with multiple witnesses, you can't enact it, okay? Some, some guilty people will go free. Also, another protection is that you accuse them and you're lying, you get whatever the, whatever the penalty was that they were going to get. So this means if, if, a, if a woman accuses a man of committing rape, and then it's found out that she's falsely accused him. She, she would go to prison under this principle. She would go to prison for the same amount of time he would have if he had been guilty. 
Now it's different if they find out, well, we, it's indeterminate. But we're not sure if she may have been a false witness, she might not have. But if they determine that she's actually lying maliciously, then she gets the, the thing going against him. So this frees up the courts and stuff like that. There's some practical usefulness of this um, for sure. In the end, though, if a broad principle we can get from this is that we should have a serious concern for protecting the innocent, even if that means some guilty people go free. But it can't mean that all guilty people go free or that the death penalty is taken off the table because we have a command in Scripture for governments to do this. And we have the, the fearful thing that the guilt of not punishing murderers with the death penalty in particular brings the guilt of that person's blood of their victims to our nation that's a really big deal now let's talk a little bit about arguments against the death penalty um so some would say jesus rejected the death penalty when he says you've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth but i'm telling you you know turn the other cheek and all this sort of thing um this is a common misunderstanding in this passage where jesus says you've heard it said eye for an eye it's in matthew 5 he is not rejecting the phrase eye for an eye he is not rejecting that at all. He's he's rejecting a false interpretation and application of it. Okay, so for this, you have to understand, as I've been doing this whole time, the difference between government and individuals, or government and the church. So eye for an eye is a government rule meant for courts. And in with courts, it's got to be eye for an eye. That just means perfect justice. But when it comes to individuals, if they're trying to enact perfect justice, vigilante justice on their own, that's what Jesus was refuting. You've heard it said eye for an eye. Look, I'm telling you, you need to be kind to them. You need to be generous, overly kind to them. And when you have these things where you need justice, you don't enact it yourself. You go to the government to do it. So the old phrase is an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. Okay, but that's only eye for an eye in the way that Jesus refuted it. That's eye for an eye. You hurt me. Well, I stab you. Well, you stab me. So now you stab me back. And then I stab you back. And you, now, and, and the whole world just gets blind. It's just a snowball effect because it's just like the stupidest way to apply this Old Testament teaching. Uh, eye for an eye means perfect justice. And of course, it could it could imply um, financial, like ransom amounts. Like where you, okay, well, pay me the cost of the cow, okay, if you can't replace the cow, that kind of thing. But But not in the case of murder. In the case of murder... There is no ransom. There is nothing else except the death penalty. That's that's the situation. Um, so yeah, I, I would say the Jesus statement eye for an eye just has no application to this because this is about government employing, employing the death penalty, not about you doing it on your own. The second objection is that David was pardoned after killing Uriah. So some would say David, King David, he he had Uriah killed. He orchestrated the murder. The murder's on him. Nathan the prophet tells him, David, you're the man. You did this. And David knows he deserves the death penalty and God pardons him. The, the problem I have with using this passage to refute the death penalty is, is twofold. One, this would be trying to use what happened with David to refute clear teachings that come before, during, and after David on the death penalty. Right? You're, you're saying here's an exception. It undoes the rule. And that's a problem, right? Because this is, well, Romans makes it very clear that death penalty is something that's like a legitimate biblical thing that is theologically supported by God. Pretty big deal. That's one problem. Another problem is this, is that because this is an exception, it would only really be a case that at least sometimes pardoning is okay. So the general rule would be, you know, execution if you commit murder. And the exception would be, well, pardons can be allowable. 
Um, I and and I'm okay personally. I'm okay with pardons, but I but you could try to make a rule that pardons are allowable. That would be what the David situation gives you. The difference, though, is this is a divine pardon, right? Like God Himself pardons David, and He does so in virtue of the cross. And Isaiah uh, or Psalm 51 ends up being written in this context, and it's all pointing to Jesus. And and so, of course, Jesus is the rescue for all those things. But we can't make the rule out of the exception. Um, another example is John 8. In John 8, Jesus encounters the woman at the well, and there, you know, or not the woman at the well, excuse me, that's John 4. In John 8, he encounters the woman caught in adultery, and there they want him to stone her. And they bring her to him. Oh, the law says she has to be stoned. But this is exactly the same as the Matthew situation, right? Eye for an eye. This is not according to law. There's no court. There's no witnesses being brought. There's no due process. There's no, like, where's the guy even, right? Like, there's no actual justice is being sought here. They're literally just trying to get Jesus in trouble by, you know, laying traps for him effectively. And so um, Jesus then not allowing the woman to be stoned would merely be a case that people shouldn't be killed by mobs taking the law into their own hands because that's the scenario here. Um, also, another problem with that, using that to, to go against the death penalty, is that this the death penalty wasn't given as a universal rule for adultery. That's in the law of Moses. But in Genesis and in Romans, we don't have it being given as a consequence for adultery. This is important. Okay, just because the death penalty is legit doesn't mean that every reason for the death penalty under the law of Moses should be a reason today. We're not under the covenant. No, nations are not under that covenant except Israel. So that doesn't apply. Um, so it's, in other words, it's just it's, it's inapplicable, right? If, if she was there for the sake of murder, then the right response would be she has to be taken to the magistrate. Um, exceptions, of course, don't make rules. And then she could simply be seen as an exception where Jesus pardons her as a way of demonstrating the grace and the love of Christ uh, in the gospel. But also this is finally, this is a questionable passage. The passage that we look at in John 8 is a questionable passage. I have teaching on that. If you look at the playlist on my channel about textual issues related to the Bible, then you will see why. That's a questionable passage to begin with. So I'm not going to build my theology on questionable texts. Um, finally, there's an objection. Not finally, I got like four more. That God's justice is only restorative, not retributive. God's justice is restorative, not retributive. Now, hear me here for some nuance for those who might not normally hear that nuance. God's justice is both. It's restorative and it's retributive. It's both. But when you use one of these to rule out the other, that's unjust. Unjust. Unjust? That's unjust. <laughs> That's not how justice works. So if I use the fact that, that you know, penalty is, is proper application of justice, then I, I forget that justice can also be a thing that's bringing restoration. But if I use restoration as a way of trying to rule out penalty, which would be like the death penalty, then I'm actually using the term justice to make injustice. And that's a problem. So an example of this is Revelation 6.10. Revelation 6.10. For those who think that God's justice is, and, and they and a lot of them, they won't say God's justice is only restorative. They'll just say, well, it's it's primarily restorative. And they, they use these terms and you have to listen to them for a long time to realize what they're really doing is they're trying to devalue the, the penalty side of justice to the point where it almost disappears. But it's actually a major focus in scripture that um, we, we sin, we actually deserve judgment and that judgment is actually coming our way and it's not restorative. It's just judgment. I need Jesus Christ to be rescued from that punishment. 
It's not restorative for me. And in, in, a, in a broad sense, it restores creation. It restores the land, so to speak. And there, there's a lot in that in scripture about restoring the land. But it's not restorative for the people being punished in the sense that it fixes them. It just makes it right, makes the situation right. Well, Revelation 6.10 is a great example um, of how the idea of restorative judgment as primary is, it makes scripture nonsensical. Well, Revelation 6.10 says, um, And they cried with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, to understand how important this is, you need to know who's saying it. These are the saints that are seen in Revelation and John's vision. They're seen in heaven. They're already with God. They're no longer in that flesh, right? So they're not sinning in these cries. This is seen as a proper and just and good cry as they appeal to God to judge and avenge their blood because they've been killed and murdered on those who dwell on the earth. So th this, these are martyrs asking God for judgment. And it's not restorative in the sense of fixing the murderers. It's restorative in the sense of fixing the earth, but not the murderers themselves. This is something we need to know more and more because I, I keep seeing it here and there. And it, um, yeah, rest restoration is good. But when you make it the whole story, it's, it's unjust and unjust and whichever if you want to say it right or wrong, depending. Um, so we, we, um, yeah, we have that. That restorative re retributive stuff just doesn't make sense. God's, God's doing both, and re retribution is part of that. Some people would say, but Mike, to protect the innocent, we have to just never kill anybody, right? Because there's going to be, and I've seen statistics that they say four percent of those on death row are getting killed, and they shouldn't be. And I, I'm very skeptical of statistics like that because. It, it, it just strikes me on the surface. Like, I never forget your common sense as you're reading statistics. And it strikes me on the surface as like 4%. Like, how do you know 4%? Like, where is this coming from? I mean, every one of these situations had to go through courts and judges and juries and long, prolonged this and appeals and everything else. Like, how do you, 4%? Um, I'm skeptical of that. But here's the thing. Let's pretend it's 10%. Let's pretend it's 50%. So then they would say, well, then we have to abolish the death penalty. I would say the problem here is that we're, we're our solution to the injustice of, say, 50% wrongly being given the death penalty is to not give the death penalty to the other 50% who should be getting it. And I think that's a rebellion against the responsibility that God has given. So what we need to do is have greater protections. We need to reform, not remove, the death penalty in our cultures. If you're giving the death penalty out because of thought crimes, you or you believe this, we're going to kill you now because you believe it, that sort of thing. Okay, well, then you need to reform the death penalty, not remove it. It needs to be only done, at, at least in the case of murder, right? That's the clear command that we have from God, at least in the case of murder. So um, this is an argument for reform, not removal. If there's X number of innocent people on death row, then we need to reform things, not remove the death penalty. That's that's the bottom line. That's how you, you, you harmonize that fact of reality with your Christian convictions based on scripture. Others say, I just don't trust the government to get it right. And I would just say, well, it doesn't matter who you trust. God demands them to get it right and holds them accountable for getting it right. So if you say the government should never do the death penalty, you're, you're guaranteed promoting an, an injustice in the world around you. And the blood of the victims, of their murder victims, is now upon the community because they will not punish the murderers. 
that'd be a, a biblical view. Now, another perspective is that some say, well, but Mike, haven't you heard from Pope Francis on this topic? And um, you might be surprised to find out the Roman Catholic Church has done a radical, radical reversal on the topic of the death penalty. This is one of the areas where um, Catholics from a couple hundred years ago would be radically different than Roman Catholics today. And within the Catholic Church, there's a lot of disagreement on the topic. Pope Francis has actually changed the catechism of the Catholic Church, so it no longer supports the death penalty. In fact, it does the opposite. It says that, the, and here's quoting Pope Francis, that the death penalty is inadmissible because it's an attack on the inviolability and dignity of the person. Now, of course, the Catholic Church and even the papal states, the official government, the papal states, they, um, they have actually enacted the death penalty many, many times over the years. But now he says it's inadmissible. It's an attack on the inviolability and uh, dignity of the person. And I just think this is one of the many areas where the Roman Catholic Church is just, it's just invention of new theology. And they, they want to say it's, well, it's just changed over time. But this is like, there's more agreement on the death penalty being, being right and good amongst the church fathers, whom the Catholics will most often appeal to, or even old popes over the, over the first 1500, 1700, 1800 years, probably 1700 years, that there's more agreement on the death penalty than there is, like, say, on marriage being a sacrament. But it's the nature of the Catholic Church that they don't, um, they appeal to history, but they're not actually historically consistent. So just thought I'd share that with you in there. I'll make a video about that one of these days, possibly. It's on my list. Um, the death penalty is biblical. I'd like to cover some other issues. And I like to do more Bible over politics issues for you guys only because I feel like you're not getting enough teaching that's clear on this stuff. And that what you do get is you get people that are hardcore committed to Democrat or Republican sides. And then they go to the scripture to look to validate their opinions. And this to me is what breaks my heart because it's the, it's, it's completely reversed, right? It's, it's politics over Bible, over Bible, but I want Bible over politics. So I may cover other topics randomly when I happen to have the time. I, didn't, I don't have a Mark series for you guys for the next two weeks. So I did this today. Um, and that's all I have to say. So thank you guys so much for joining. Slightly shorter video. It's only like 45 minutes long. So you're welcome. I'm, I'm really helping you out. And if you just, you just, you're bugged that it's so short, you can go and binge watch more content on the Mark series. If you haven't checked it out, going verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark, doing theology, apologetics, all that kind of stuff. I realize, and this is, this is the whole point. When I put the Bible over politics, it means that I end up with an actual opinion. I'm not in between. Because some people think being a biblical Christian means, okay, I'm not Republican, I'm not Democrat. I'm not right and I'm not left. I'm not conservative, I'm not liberal. I'm kind of amorph I'm an amorphous, like flexible thing. And rather, what I want to do is I want to become biblical, which means that in many cases, I will agree with a particular political party. But that's purely coincidental. Because my commitments are scriptural. And if I happen to agree with them there, then I can support that. And if I happen to disagree with them there, I can support that. But I don't become this sort of amorphous, like, let's all just get along kind of blob. I want to be biblical in these things. And I hope that I'm helping you guys to do the same thing. And I appreciate your, your pushback and your feedback. If you have a thoughtful criticism against the things that I've presented here, I'm all ears. Put it in the comments below. I'm looking for thoughtful criticisms. I do expect a number of people to comment criticisms I already answered in the video or to misrepresent my own position just because I've been doing YouTube for a while now. But I'd like to hear your thoughtful criticisms. All right, one last clip of the cat cam. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's the kitty. 
All right. That's all I got. Maybe I'll see you guys Friday. God bless you.